Scripture. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, declares, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now in our time of worship, as we sang and prayed and fellowship, that we could continue in our worship now by submitting our mind, our soul, our spirit to the authority of your spirit-inspired word. And Lord, as always, we ask now by your Holy Spirit's ministry that you would speak to each of us through what you've already spoken here in the written and recorded word of God. Bless your word this day, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, the word perfect is defined in this manner. Having all the required qualities and desired elements free from any flaw in condition. Here in our passage this morning, I believe the Holy Spirit gives us insight, if you would, into heaven's perfect worship. We have displayed before us in the Word of God a picture around the throne of God of the unceasing worship of our Lord in a literally perfect spiritual environment where God is being glorified, where the worship in an unceasing manner is being given unto him, and where we can be absolutely certain, no question involved, this worship is being fully directed by the Holy Spirit of God himself. We don't have to wonder if there's any human interference going on. We don't have to wonder if in any way the human spirit is kind of interfering with what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. This is spirit-directed worship, free from any flaws caused by human condition or corruption or human limits or fleshly weakness. We have perfect, pure, spiritual worship around the throne of God, possessing all that's required in its perfect quality and desired elements free from all human error in expression. It is precisely and accurately the way that God is being worshipped in proper activity, and really, we might say it's God's ideal. It's God laying out for us, this is what it looks like and the components involved in it. Look, as Christians, in a sense, we get to practice on earth, worshiping the Lord now, honoring and adoring him now, and our spirit longs for the day when we will one day get to enter into literally and join in the assembly of all of the saints and the angels that we read here in heaven's throne, glorifying and worshiping the Lord. Now, remember the backdrop of this section, chapters 4 and 5 particularly, John has been experiencing a spiritual revelation of the throne of God, and he's been seeing and hearing what's happening around the throne of God, and he's described numerous things. He began describing all the glorious beauty 
and all the brilliance of the atmosphere of heaven's throne and the one who's sitting there upon the throne amongst all the angels and the saints, of course, who we know are God's people there, how they never cease, they never rest, the Bible tells us. We saw in chapter 4, giving glory and honor and thanks, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We saw in chapter 4 as well, as they were there in unified acts of submission and reverence, how all the saints, it says, remember it says, were falling down and casting their crowns before the throne of God, proclaiming, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, literally it's for your pleasure, for your purpose, all things exist and are created. Now, as we began chapter 5 in our last study together, remember John then turned, it says, and he saw there a, a scroll, a seven-sealed scroll being held in the hand of God the Father. And we talked about how that scroll, no doubt, was the title deed to the earth. And an angel then proclaimed with a loud voice, who is worthy, literally, who is qualified, who is authorized to take that scroll from the hand of God the Father and to open its seals. And remember, it says, no one was found worthy. And remember, then it said, John began weeping over this reality. Literally, he started convulsing and sobbing in deep grief and really what it was is he was horrified in that initial moment of thinking about the earth remaining forever under the curse of sin and Satan's domination and pollution that's bringing all the ruin and hardship and suffering that we see happening on the earth. And as John is sobbing over the reality of, oh my goodness, if the world stood in this condition forever, it's at that point that, remember, John was then consoled. The angel said, do not weep. And we saw, if you look back in chapter 5, verse 5, that one of the elders then said to him, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed, he's conquered, overcome, to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Of course, he's seeing a picture there, a description of the Lord Jesus Christ, who the Bible says, like the lion of the tribe of Judah, a king, a conquering king, Jesus prevailed through his redemptive work and righteously through his sinless life and sacrificial death and his powerful resurrection, he conquered and prevailed and redeemed back, if you would, purchased back everything that was lost in Adam for humanity. And Jesus righteously redeemed all that was necessary and as John is told now to look at this lion that's prevailed, he turns and looks, and the last thing we saw is when he's looking for this lion, he says, in the midst of the throne, central to all the worship, remember, he said, I saw, looking for a lion that prevailed, he said, I saw a lamb that was slain. He saw Jesus there in his glorified body bearing the marks of his suffering and his sacrificial death and for all of eternity, imagine that, for all of eternity, Jesus will bear the marks of his passion and his suffering. And for all of eternity, as we look to him, we will see again and again that constant reminder of his love and the depth of his love that he suffered for us in that way to spare our soul and to bring us to heaven well, it's at that point when Jesus then came forward, verse 7, to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father. Look at our text, verse 8. It says, now when he, and that's Jesus, had then taken the scroll, the four living creatures, who we know from our prior studies, without being redundant, that's a reference there to the cherubim, to the angels, pictured in that way, and the 24 elders, which again, we've talked about numerous times, a representation of the church, of the saints, in symbolic language there. And the elders, verse 8, fell down before the Lamb. Now, again, notice another strong display of reverence, another strong display of adoration and submission. We find again here the second of three different times, three times we find in Revelation 4 and 5, 
where it says that they were falling down on their faces in worship before the Lord in adoration. It says they fell down, verse 8 there, look at it, before the Lamb, referring particularly to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And notice, this was not done by just one person among them. This was everyone. Everyone in unison, just like they would all cast their crowns in unified adoration, all of them here collectively at once in unified response to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and appreciation towards him, for the second of three times now we read here, they all fall down on their faces in response toward his great love and sacrifice and in total humility, free from all human pride, free from all inhibitions, they prostrate themselves there at the throne, taking this position of displaying full reverence to the one on the throne. The idea there, just like you would pay homage to a king, this is the imagery here. They are paying complete homage to the king of kings in full adoration, and as well as that position of kneeling and putting one's face to the ground, it also displayed submission. The idea being, we have no rights, you should rule over us, and it's also a picture of complete surrender, rule over us, done by all of heaven's occupants in a form of giving Jesus the highest honor. And so we see them now again, displaying this adoration towards him, as well as notice verse 8 also goes on to tell us, it says, as they fall down on their faces before the lamb, verse 8 goes on, each, that's each one doing this, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So notice, each one who's there worshiping, the Holy Spirit tells us, has a harp. A harp is a stringed instrument for creating music to accompany them with the singing that we also see going on in heaven, the stringed instrument to keep melody and tempo when singing. Heaven's perfect worship includes both instruments to provide music and melody and tempo, as well as singing and expression of voices to give worship to the Lord. Psalm 33 says this, praise the Lord with the harp, a stringed instrument. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song and play skillfully with a shout of joy. I find this interesting. In heaven, the Bible says that those that are the occupants there worshiping, that each has a stringed instrument. Now, I don't know. Perhaps in our glorified body that's free from all of us other failures and flaws and weaknesses, finally we'll all be able to learn an instrument. Tommy will be out of a job. We'll all be able, perhaps, and you know, I, to me that's, that's somewhat interesting. I, I, like maybe some of you, I remember when I was a, particularly when I was a brand new believer and I just wanted to worship the Lord so much, I, I took the attempt to try and play the guitar and realized real quick, that's going to punish more people than, than help more people. Just not my calling. Uh, and how wonderful to see, you know, and I just even wanted to learn the guitar. I thought, man, it'd be so cool. And I would watch, you know, guys lead worship. And I thought, man, just to be able to like sit around my wife and just sing worship songs. Well, God ultimately blessed me with son-in-laws who can do that. So eventually I got them in my family. But how cool in heaven that we all perhaps in some way beyond the singing are engaging and expressing worship he also says the occupants of heaven are holding, verse 8, these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That is the requests made unto God by believers, the saints that are upon the earth. So notice, God pictures our prayers arriving at heaven's throne. What a beautiful picture, like sweet-smelling incense like the fragrance of beautiful, pleasing incense. Now, in the Old Testament, we know they offered unto the Lord in the temple of God routinely incense as a part of their worship, as this fragrant offering. The idea was the incense gave off a pleasing fragrance as it rose upwards. The psalmist declares to us, Psalm 141, O Lord, I cry out to you, and then he says, let my prayer be set before you as, metaphor, as incense. The idea is the psalmist, as he talked about his prayer unto God, Lord, may my prayers, 
whether it's expressing thankfulness, gratitude, or whether it's even making requests or interceding on behalf of help for others. He says, Lord, may my prayers bring pleasure unto you just like the beautiful, pleasing fragrance of incense. May my prayers have that influence and effect upon you. How beautiful to see the Bible describe the prayers of the saints here in heaven, pictured in this way, kept and collected in precious golden bowls there at the throne of God. The picture, of course, indicates really, I think, some wonderful things regarding prayer, if we were to ponder it, one of them being this. For all the saints, as God's people in right relationship with him, who are lifting their prayers, lifting their requests, notice, all of our prayers arrive safely into heaven and reach God's throne. Because there they are, the Bible pictures them, the prayers of the saints. They all arrive there safely. And I think that's just important to remember once in a while, to see God picturing our prayers, not just those who we would think, oh, that person's very saintly. No, the Bible teaches a saint is anyone who is in a relationship with Jesus Christ and who is righteous through the finished work of Christ. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. If you're a biblical believer, you're a saint. Not this idea we have of saints. These are the prayers of all God's people and I think it's a good reminder to see they've all arrived there in heaven. Because despite how we think, or despite times how we feel, or despite what it seems like, you know, it feels like my prayers are just hitting the ceiling and falling back down, or Lord, I've been praying about this, or I've been, you know, seeking you about that. And sometimes the enemy discourages us, and in the weakness of our flesh, we wonder, man, God, are, are my prayers reaching you? Are you hearing? And, and sometimes we struggle. Listen, the Bible says, absolutely. Absolutely. Every one of our prayers is being kept. He hears all. I think another thing this reminds us as well as we see these prayers held in these golden bowls, that our prayers are valuable to God, right? Gold's a valuable thing. Our prayers are precious. They are valuable and important to God. Notice our prayers, the Bible doesn't picture our prayers collected there in heaven in, in jars uh, or in clay pots, it pictures our prayers kept there in heaven in golden bowls because they're highly valuable to God. Good to know and remember again, God highly values each and every one of your prayers. Every prayer, every request you make of God, every time you communicate to God, he values that. It matters to him. You know, I have children. I've raised you know, three daughters. I, I didn't care whether they were babbling when they were a baby. I, I, I love to speak to my daughters. And, and, and how much more God is a heavenly father. He loves to hear our voice. He values everything that you talk to him about. It's important to him. It's precious to him. And it's something incredibly important. Sadly, if we were just to be honest, I think perhaps we, as the ones on the earth, are the ones that tend to de devalue prayer. We tend to make the mistake of not seeing prayer in a proper light, and we devalue the value of prayer and the importance of prayer. And so often, we're the ones making that mistake. God sees it as an incredibly valuable and important thing. Perhaps if we saw how valuable prayer was properly to God, we wouldn't neglect prayer and communicating to God, whether it's in our personal time of praying or times when we're coming together to pray with other people. Thirdly, notice also that prayer, like that incense, the picture of it, is something that's pleasing to God. And I think it's good to always remember that, that it pleases God, certainly when we do different things in our Christian life, but one of the things that pleases God apparently is when we pray. He pictures it and sees it like sweet-smelling incense. It's something that when we communicate to him, it brings great pleasure to his heart. And think about this as they're holding these prayers here now as these events are unfolding in heaven, one of the things that Jesus taught us to pray, right? He said, when you pray, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And now as these events are unfolding, and we'll see chapter 6, verse 1, the events of the tribulation start to unfold. I believe now at this point, as we've talked about before, you know, the church has been raptured. And now chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 18 will be the events of the tribulation, which will then culminate in the second coming of Christ, you and I returning with him, him overthrowing the Antichrist, setting up his kingdom on the earth. These prophetic things, the clock is now beginning to unwind here. And in some ways, what we're seeing is prayers that have been prayed through the ages. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. Lord, please, your will be done on earth as it is there in heaven. Now, all of a sudden, prayers are being prayed that in some ways, through the ages of church history, have been stored up in these golden bowls full of incense, never wasted. And now they're finally being answered, and they're starting to come to pass, literally, in the scenes and the events that are beginning to unfold in this process as he begins to unwind the prophetic clock of last day's events. And it's just a good reminder to us. Some of our prayers, folks, are answered directly, and they're answered now. But all of our prayers never go in vain, and sometimes our prayers get stored up, and they are contained there in heaven, and it's not like the file gets lost. Some of those prayers of your kingdom come, your will be done, God has been holding those for centuries. And he's saying, there's a day when I'm going to answer those prayers. When the timing is right, when everything in God's wisdom aligns with it, and how wonderful to know Though we struggle, but our struggle, here's what it is. It's with the timetable thing. We live in a time continuum. God lives outside of that. And so we're wondering, Lord, we've been praying for centuries. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Lord, when are these things going to come to pass? And, and, And for us, it's such a struggle. But with God, he's never lost one of those requests. And I tell you this, God has never lost one of your requests. Don't ever believe that. God's listening. God's heard everything you've said, every time you've poured out your heart to him. And I'm not spiritual enough to give you the explanations of how and why and when and all those things, but I do have enough evidence from the word of God to tell you God hears. And he's not ignoring. And he's a good father and he's aware and he sees those prayers as valuable, so valuable, he's using golden bowls there in the eternal realm, like pleasing incense to contain the prayers of the saints Verse 9 goes on to say, and then they began to sing. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So here we now see the lyrics, notice, to one of the heavenly songs that the church is singing in response to salvation from sin that's provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told particularly this is one of the songs that they're singing in heaven. So praise the Lord. When you get to heaven, you're going to know the lyrics to some of the songs. So you can help other Christians who chose not to study the book of Revelation or churches that won't study the book of Revelation, and you can say, don't worry, I know the lyrics. We did that at our fellowship. And now we see the lyrics of part of what they're singing here. And who is singing this new song of appreciation? Well, it's very clear. It's those who are grateful for being, it says in the lyrics, for being redeemed. For those who've been redeemed. He says, you have, right there, verse 9, you have redeemed us to God, verse 9, by your blood. Now, to redeem or to be redeemed speaks of a process of paying a required ransom price in order to free someone who's a captive or a prisoner to restore them back to their original status. And so this is what happened spiritually when Jesus provided redemption for humanity. Listen, nowhere does the Bible teach that angels are or need to be redeemed. The Bible teaches that fallen humanity is redeemed. That we as human beings, God's cherished creation made in his image, that we are redeemed so that we might be restored back into right relationship with God as the result of what was lost in Adam when the human race fell into sin when Adam rebelled against God. As a result of sin's entry into the human race, all people, the Bible clearly teaches, are born sinful, enslaved to sin, dead spiritually, 
and we are unable to deliver ourselves or to do anything to deal with the issue of being separated from God relationally. The Bible clearly teaches we are born sinful from birth. If you don't know that, watch a child. You never, or someday when you raise a child, you'll be convinced then. So stinking cute, right? I have two grandchildren who get ready to turn one years old. They're adorable. But at this point, from a grandpa perspective, it's hilarious to see them now being sinful already. They start acting in a certain way, and my wife and I just kind of stand back and snicker and just, oh, adorable, but human, very human, very human. And look, we never have to teach our kids how to do what's wrong. They naturally had to know what's wrong. We have to teach them how to do what's right all the time because we are born fallen. We're born sinful, separated from God, and we're enslaved to our sinful nature and to the rulership, technically, spiritually, of Satan, and we're unable to deliver ourselves, and we need to be rescued from that condition. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus came as our blood relative, being born in the body of a man, living fully God and fully man, so that he might be the mediator between God and and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, so that he might be able to pay the ransom price to release humanity from our sinful condition through a work of redemption. We talked about that in depth in our last teaching in Revelation chapter 5, this redemptive work, and that's why he says here in verse uh, 9 of our song, you were slain, that is the sacrificial lamb, Jesus, on behalf of of our sins, he became the sacrificial lamb and was slain, took the punishment for our sin, and he says, and you have redeemed us to God. The idea is back unto God, that Jesus paid the ransom price for you and I, and that ransom price was his blood. Hebrews 9 says, with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all and obtained eternal redemption. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, in him, that's Jesus, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. See, only redeemed sinners can sing that song right there in heaven. Only redeemed sinners can sing that song. That is a song not of the angels. That is a song of the saints, of the church, who've experienced that personally and are celebrating that, as Acts 20 says, that he purchased the church with his own blood. And notice, in regards to the work of salvation and how sufficient and equally available it is for all nations, because we all have the same need, notice that he says in verse 9 going on, you've redeemed us to God by your blood. And then he says, out of every tribe and tongue, every language, and any people and all nations. Notice, God's salvation was for all of humanity all over the globe, because why? We all have one universal problem. We're all plagued with the spiritual and eternal disease of sin. See, it does not matter what part of the globe you are on. It doesn't matter what nationality, what ethnicity, what tribe, what race. None of that matters. There's one race, technically, folks. It's called the human race. The human race. And I'm not diminishing the value of our identities and these things, but we put way too much credence in that. You understand from God's perspective and eternal perspective, God's ultimately going to unify everybody together in one family because we all have the same problem. We all have sin that needs to be forgiven in our lives. And whether you're in the wealthiest nation of the world or you're a tribe in the most impoverished condition in a third world country, we all have the same problem. We need the forgiveness of our sins. We need a relationship with God and access to heaven that only comes through Jesus. And Jesus offered this to all nationalities, to all races. And here they are in heaven. Look at the picture there. They're all unified together in worship. Isn't that so beautiful? To see people from all over the globe having been saved by Christ there around the throne of God, worshiping in unison. We're going to see later in one voice. And further describing why Jesus is so worthy of worship And why we sing this, he goes on to say, verse 10, and you've not only redeemed us, he says, you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So the redemptive work of Jesus not only saves us from being slaves of sin and slaves of Satan spiritually, but it also elevates and gives to us a wonderful, honored spiritual status. 
You want to talk about quite an elevation to go from being a slave to being a king spiritually? That's quite a promotion there that comes through Jesus. But the Bible tells us spiritually that we become kings and priests, or what might better be said, a spiritual kingdom of priests. All believers now experience a spiritual priesthood in our worship unto the Lord. Peter describes it this way. First Peter 2, he says, we are a, as Christians, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen generation, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just like the priests in the Old Testament in the temple, we now have spiritual access directly to God. And honestly, in a much greater way, we can come at any time boldly to the throne of grace through the blood of Jesus. We have direct access to God, just like the priests of old. And we offer up spiritual sacrifices, not animals and blood sacrifices and grain. We offer up spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord in our worship to him. We, like priests, can stand in the gap in intercession, asking the Lord's power to work in the lives of other people. And we also, as a kingdom of priests, are also given a spiritual authority in the Lord, if you would, where we represent the authority of a greater throne, the throne of God in heaven, which will one day culminate in us even helping Jesus reign when he returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth. That's what it's culminating. You see, he says there at the end of verse 10, we shall one day reign on the earth with Jesus. At the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes back and in his second coming establishes his kingdom on the earth for a thousand year reign, the millennium, we shall come and the Bible teaches we shall reign together with him. We'll assist him in that reign as he rules over the earth as the rightful king. Now, if I could, let me take a brief moment just to take note of here a few observations briefly of heaven's perfect worship. One thing I would want to draw to your attention there in the midst of particularly verses 9 and 10 is notice the worship, perfect worship in heaven's throne is a response to the Lord for who he is and for what he has done. It is a response to the Lord for who he is and what he's done. It's not about those there in heaven doing something for their own feelings. It's not them worshiping in a manner where afterwards they're saying, I don't know, I, I just didn't feel it this morning. I just didn't connect this morning. I just didn't have a good experience. It wasn't about making them happy or making them feel better or increasing their mood or having a spiritual pep rally for that matter. It was about them rendering in response worship and giving worship unto the Lord, that he was the one on the receiving end. Now, certainly, listen, I understand we all know that when we engage in worship of the Lord, there's a reciprocal benefit, and we get ministered to and refreshed in the Spirit as well. But the primary intention of worship is he is receiving something from us. We see repeated in chapters 4 and 5 this reality that he is the one receiving. In fact, if you glance down in verse 12, right here in our verses, he says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive. You see, to receive. He's the one that's receiving something. Worship is about us giving something unto him in response to who he is and what he's done for us. That's the stimulus that prompted worship, giving something that he deserves to receive. Secondly, take notice as well that in heaven there, everyone redeemed is all engaged in worship in this praise. Part of heaven's realm, when we are free from all human inhibitions, is you notice there very clearly in verse 9, it says, they, that is everyone redeemed, everyone, not some, they all sang. They all gave worship. They all expressed their appreciation. Everyone's engaged and compelled to sing in praise and honor to the Lord. Look, Scripture commands that we're to do this even now on earth. Psalm 30 says, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. 
Psalm 47 says, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. Psalm 98, sing joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. So we're to sing now on earth. The Bible is very clear about that. But you notice in heaven already chapter 4 and 5, and we'll see it more through the book, there's a lot of singing that goes on in heaven. There's a lot of music and a lot of singing unto the Lord. And I point this out to you this morning by way of an application for all of our hearts to say this, please do not diminish the value and the importance of expressing through singing worship unto the Lord. Be very, very careful of that error. Recognize that we are going to be engaged in doing that forever, and it is something that's important that as a Christian we participate, we engage in singing and expressing in worship unto the Lord. In heaven, everyone's engaged. Hebrews 13 says, let us continually offer the sacrifice, remember we talk about spiritual sacrifices, the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Let me say this gently but honestly, and I know it'll step on the toes of some, withholding and robbing worship unto the Lord by singing and engaging in that manner to him and neglecting to sing is robbing God of glory. It is not giving him something that he is worthy to receive, and in a sense, it is resisting something that we're told to be doing on this earth, and that we will. I assure you, if you're saved, you'll like to sing all of a sudden. When you get to heaven, you won't go, oh, I don't, I'm really not a singer. I'm really not a singer. Well, listen, I always say to that, God didn't save you to keep you how you are. He saved you to change you in every area of your life. And it ain't about your singing voice anyway. We don't want you singing up here if you sing certain ways, certainly, because then none of us can sing, right? That's why we are a little selective in regards to that. But we're all to sing unto the Lord. Let me just encourage you, know, be, be careful of that, whether you just you know, stand there and watch everyone else sing and you're disengaged for whatever the reasoning may be in your heart or mind, or if you're someone, and I know this is really going to step on toes, but I'm going to say it, who uses the song portion of the worship service at the beginning to kind of come in late and get situated, and you routinely do that. I'm not talking about, oh, I ran late one morning. I'm talking about a, a habit where you begin to, oh, they, I got at least three, four songs to get in there to get settled before the Bible study. Be careful of that. Singing and worshiping the Lord through song is a part of the eternal, perfect experience of worship, and it's important. We should be engaging in that. We should be giving the word, the worship that he is deserving of. And I love the picture, as I said as well earlier, how all of, of the nations of the world, out of every tribe and tongue and people, are all there in unified worship singing. I have to ask myself, how is that going to happen? Think about that. We're all singing in English this morning. Imagine all the tribes, all tongues, all nations there, and they are singing. I don't think there are thousands, like there are thousands of languages, thousands of interpreters. It makes me, wow, how cool is that? Somehow, worship is going to be led in heaven where all of humanity will be engaged in a unified way, singing and engaging together in unified worship unto the Lord. What a beautiful scene. I think for those who lead worship as well, if God's given you a musical gifting, it's important to be sensitive to doing that in a manner and style where you can help everyone to engage. In heaven, everyone, even with tons of languages and nationality differences, they're all engaged. Somehow, the way it's done perfectly there, they're all engaged as a one voice, the Bible says in our own chapter here, singing unto the Lord. And I think when music is led congregationally and it's being directed, look, it's not a concert. It's not about how great somebody can sing. It's not about singing in a way where you go off on some beautiful riff and everybody's going, wow, that's really great. I can't do that. No, it's about leading purposely in a manner where you're realizing the goal of our directing music. And I'm so thankful for the team that God has blessed us here with that are so sensitive to this 
that we lead through songs in a manner and a style so that everyone can engage. From the most beautiful singer to the, ah, ah, to, the to the just most horrible, that we're, it's done in a way we can all engage. Hey, I can do that. I can follow that because I want to engage. I don't want to watch a concert. I want to worship the Lord, man. I want to sing. Help me to engage. Do it in a manner, in a style. And I love how beautifully here everyone is doing such. And you notice that it's being directly addressed to the Lord. It wasn't just spiritual songs. Do you notice that the repetition? They're saying, you are worthy, verse 9. You were slain. They said, you have made us kings and priests. They're not just singing spiritual songs. They're singing what? To the Lord. They're singing directly to the Lord not just singing spiritual themes, and that singing was directed and centered upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John goes on, verse 11, and says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So John now observes, as he looks here, this incredibly large multitude around the throne of God comprised of both angels and elders, saints. And as he's trying to describe the immensity of this crowd that he sees around the throne of God, look at the language in verse 11. He says, the number was 10,000 times 10,000s, and then thousands of thousands upon that. Now, don't try and figure out the math in your head. The language is meant to describe a crowd that is so overwhelming and large, it's innumerable. In fact, the Greek there is literally myriads times myriads. A myriad in the Greek was the largest number possible to indicate something that was unmeasurable. The idea is it's innumerable. You can't measure it. And then he says myriads times myriads. So the picture here is just a massive amount of people, we may think millions or billions, an innumerable, uncountable population. And John says, as I see this large crowd, notice he says, I also heard, verse 12, I heard saying with a loud voice. Take note of that. He didn't say loud voices. A loud what? Singular. Voice. You have billions, perhaps, of heavenly occupants, and with one unified voice, they're expressing loud worship to the Lord. You know, isn't it so wonderful? I love occasions when we're, you know, worshiping, you know, when I get the privilege to sit out there and worship with you and stand out there, or if in a moment maybe the music kind of, you know, quiets off and then all the voices are just engaged, and you just hear the voices of all people, and, and it literally becomes like one beautiful unified voice and what unifies all our voices is the love for Jesus, not the sound and the tone of our voices. And imagine, I, I can't even begin to ponder millions, billions of heavenly occupants. How loud must that have been? How incredible. And think, heaven is a perfectly peaceful place, beautiful and peaceful, but apparently it's going to be pretty loud. It's going to be incredibly loud in the worship and the power of the worship as they're expressing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The word worthy literally means deserving. That is deserving of attention and respect and admiration and honor. The word worthy itself in its root term just means to proclaim one's worth. And look at the terms they're expressing of what Jesus was worthy to receive. It says, you're worthy to receive, he says, power. That is, our submission unto him. Lord, you're worried, worthy to receive all of, 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 of the power to rule over us. Lord, you're worthy of that. May you have complete control over us, the idea is. He says, worthy to receive our riches, that is everything of value in our life, given back unto him because of the recognition. It's all been given from you, and we're just giving back unto you. You're worthy, he says, Lord, to, to receive our thoughts, that is, our wisdom, our minds, to think upon him in our praise. Again, what did Jesus say? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
and to have our mind engaged as we're worshiping. He says, you're worthy to receive our strength and is to offer the best of our energy and efforts, even in our weakness, that we offer our strength. And sometimes it's just a little bit of strength. Lord, I don't even have much strength. I'm running on fumes here, Lord. But, but how beautiful. They said, Lord, you're, you're worthy of our strength, as well as he says he's also worthy to receive these last three beautiful words. He's worthy to receive anything that would honor him, anything that would bring him glory and exalt him, and he says he's worthy to receive blessing. Notice the idea that we're blessing him in the midst of worship. And again, there's that analogy again. We're seeking to bless him. We're seeking to bring pleasure to him. See, a, technically, I hate to use the word um, successful, but you know what I mean by that. A, a successful, uh, proper worship gathering and expression unto the Lord is not at the end of it, did I get blessed? Did we get blessed? What we should want to know is, did he get blessed? Was he blessed by that? Was he honored by that? Was he glorified by that? And again, he says, you're worthy, deserving of receiving this, Lord. And then that loud voice, verse 13, says, every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and as there such in the sea, the picture there is encapsulating all of creation, every angel, every animal, every person alive, every person deceased, all recognizing how worthy he is of worship, again, break forth saying blessing and honor and glory and power. And notice now, he says, be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. That seems to indicate there clearly that the worship is directed, notice, towards both the father and the son, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Again, reminding us of the deity of Jesus as both the Father and the Son are there, worship being given unto both of them. And you notice the extent of worship is matched to the one receiving it, the one who lives forever and ever because he says, this blessing and honor and glory is given to the one there on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. I like that for this very simple reason. Praise in heaven continues forever and ever. I love the idea that one day I'm going to get to step into a worship gathering and there ain't no time constraints. Man, how awesome is that going to be? You know, when we're on earth here, of course, we're living in the limitation of our humanity. And so we have to have ending times to our worship gatherings because people have busy lives and they got to get back to. And, you know, I know how it works. You go a little bit over schedule. You see the irritation setting in. You see the frustration on people's faces. People start to get distracted. How cool in heaven, none of that's ever going to matter. Nobody's going to say, man, we're going three minutes over this morning. Why did they do this? Do we have to sing another song? In heaven, he's so worthy forever and ever and ever and ever, just continuing to worship the Lord. How amazing that is going to be. Well, when this happens, verse 14, the final verse, the four living creatures, the angels, they get charismatic for a moment there. They say, amen. Let it be so. In other words, worship him with all we have forever and ever. Let it be so. Let it come to pass. And then verse 14 concludes saying, and then the 24 elders, again, these are the picture of the saints, third time now fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. For the third time in the scene, they take a posture of total submission before him as they express worship to the eternal king. And I want you to notice, as this is now the third time they take this posture of surrender of adoration and submission as they bow before his throne because I think it is a fitting reminder that worship is not, please hear me, it's not just singing songs. It's what's going on in the condition of one's hearts. Remember, Jesus said, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So we can worship with our mouths and our heart can be in the wrong place. Here, as their posture is adoring the Lord in this manner, in this perfect scene, as everyone, the whole, the whole occupancy of heaven, they all go down on their faces again, bowing before him. They show that worship is about ultimately surrendering our will 
to his will. The songs may help in the process, the words and the opportunity, but worship singing is, is not just about engaging in the emotional thrill of getting caught up in the excitement. It's like a concert type thing. And well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not what it's about. Worship is about, yes, using melody, using song, but the goal is ultimately to come to a place where, in a sense, in our hearts, we've surrendered our will to the Lord and said, Lord, you are king. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And Lord, I've got a heavy heart over this, but Lord, I lay down my will. I lay down my rights. And through this song and the worship and the expression, maybe the tears that run down our face, that we're acknowledging, Lord, you are king, and we're submitting ourselves afresh to him as ruler. I encourage you to take note. The first time the word worship appears in the Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 22. And it's the occasion where God tells Abraham to lay down his one and only son, Isaac, whom he loved, and to sacrifice him on the altar. Abraham, the most precious thing in your life, I want you to sacrifice it. I want you to lay it down on the altar. And Abraham says, as he's heading up the mountain to go sacrifice his son, he's got no guitar. He doesn't have a praise song in mind. He is going up that mountain to lay down his will and surrender to the will of his God, whom he loves. Abraham says, the lad and I are going to worship and will return. What's he saying? I'm going to lay down my will to God, because that's what worship is. That's why Revelation chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable worship. See, worship is presenting myself to the Lord. Here I am, Lord. I lay down my life. I give you my whole life as an act and an expression of worship. You know, if you haven't noticed, heaven is a pretty worshipful place. And so let me say this morning to all of us, perhaps an indication to how much your heart is connected to heaven is how much you really enjoy engaging in worship. And if you want your heart to be a little bit more heavenly connected, I'll tell you a simple way, just start engaging in worship more. Because as you engage in worship more, your heart will become connected with your eternal occupation. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 4 that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. Do you hear that? He said the Father is seeking, he doesn't say workers, he doesn't say warriors, he doesn't even say witnessers. What's the Father seeking? Worshipers. Worshipers. Let's stand, let's pray.